0: Christian voice in your home, we now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah
1: of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. I will be reading the witness testimonies of two, at least two Jewish uh, converts to Catholicism or Jewish entrance into the Catholic Church, depending on how one looks at it. And uh, they both happen to be friends of mine. And so uh, it's very moving and, and uh, um, consoling, rewarding for me to read the accounts of their witness testimonies. Uh, both of them have actually been on. On the show, ask guests at various points in time. One is a British man, Bernard Ellis, who uh, received a, a rather miraculous conversion through his presence at Medjugorje. And the other is a Argentinian Jewish woman named Luciana, who also had a very miraculous conversion. So I look forward very much to reading their accounts of their conversions and uh, talking about it a little bit. But before I do, I had two other small directions that I wanted to go on today's show. The first one is because when I was at a daily mass yesterday on Friday, the gospel reading was from the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 16 verses 1 to 8, the parable of the unjust steward. And the meaning of this parable, uh, Uh, At least one of the interpretations of this parable seems very compelling and very clear and very rewarding to think about, especially as we come to the close of the year of mercy. And so I want to give that interpretation of this parable. But first I will will read the passage from Luke chapter 16, which was yesterday's uh, mass reading. Jesus said to his disciples, A rich man had a steward was reported to him for squandering his property. He summoned him and said, What is this I hear about you? Prepare a full account of your stewardship because you can no longer be my steward. The steward said to himself, What shall I do now that my master is taking the position of steward away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I'm res- when I am removed from the stewardship they may welcome me into their own homes. He called in his master's debtors one by one. To the first he said, How much do you owe my master? He replied, One hundred measures of olive oil. He said to him, Here is your promissory note. Sit down and quickly write one for fifty. Then to another he said, And you, how much do you owe? He replied, One hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Here is your promissory note. Write one for eighty. And the master commended that dishonest, excuse me, and the master commended that dishonest steward for acting prudently. For the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. So that is the parable. And it seems to me that a quite transparent interpretation of it has to do with mercy and forgiveness. And the way that we are called upon, as it says in the Our Father, to forgive those who trespass against us, so that God may forgive us. Because, in fact, you can see in this parable, one can see this parable as that the master is, in fact, God, and the steward is us. And we go through this life as stewards of, essentially, of God's property, And when we think that somebody has offended against us, the offense is truly against God because we are only stewards for God of everything that we have. So the, um, basically when the steward replaces the hundred measure debt with a measure of fifty, Uh, excuse me, with a debt of 50 measures of olive oil, for instance. He is forgiving half of his master's debt. But he is, I better back up and kind of start over. This is what we do when we forgive those who offend us. Because when we forgive those who offend us, we're really forgiving their offenses against God. And it is within our power to forgive those who uh, who offend against us. So um, when we forgive somebody who offends against us, we're really forgiving their debt to God. And this is why the master says at the end of this story that the master commended that dishonest student for steward for acting prudently, for the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. In other words, the steward in this world, in a worldly sense, who is doing this, would be being um, prudent in doing this because he was protecting himself from his master's displeasure by forgiving others who owed his master something. And that's exactly what we do when we forgive others who have offended against us. We are uh, turning away the master's displeasure. Uh, we're we're re- receiving forgiveness from the master because we have, in fact, forgiven others in what we think of as their offense against us, but which is really an offense against the master, an offense against God. Anyway, this seemed clear to me. I, I know it didn't come out of my mouth terribly clear, but I hope that I hope that uh, it came across at least to some extent. Anyway, and um, let me. Uh, I did also want to uh, talk about one other item that has came up in a previous show. It was the topic of a show in June, in fact which is uh, the totality of divine providence. When I brought this up in the show in June, I brought it up in the context of my initial, uh, one could say, mystical experience that brought me to conversion to faith in God when I was uh, an atheist or an agnostic Jew. And in that experience, I saw the absolute totality of divine providence that absolutely everything that has ever happened to me at every moment of my life has been the most perfect thing that could be arranged coming from the hands of an all-knowing, all-loving God, not only including those things that caused the most suffering at the time, but especially those things that caused the most suffering at the time. So in that context, I, I just wanted to give this little sort of like a parable that seems to me to be very telling, which is the following. Imagine, um, uh, Imagine yourself in a fairy tale, so to speak, and you're in this fairy tale, and some fairy godmother or some other supernatural being comes to you and uh, offers to grant you a wish, and it grants you that wish, and that wish is such that for the rest of your life, you're in a kind of perfect fantasy existence in which nothing could possibly happen to you except exactly what you want. In other words, everything that you want is exactly what happens to you, And nothing that happens to you is anything but exactly what you want. All of your desires are perfectly reflected in all of the circumstances of your life from that point forward. Obviously, you would be in a state of um, close to perfect happiness and certainly perfect peace, perfectly happy and perfectly peaceful without any anxiety or concern or disappointment or anything because the total circumstances of everything in your life around you would be a perfect reflection of your own desires, of your own wants, of your own wishes. Now, put that aside for a moment, and consider what it means to put God first in your life, what genuine conversion to God means. I will read a passage from Galatians chapter 2 in that light. It's, of course, St. Paul saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself to me. The measure of all things in our life becomes not what I want, but what God wants. I do not choose the things that I like best, but the things that God likes best. The the issue is not my first choice, but God's first choice for everything that I do, for everything that happens to me, Whether it pleases me or not, whether it matches my desires or not is not what matters. What matters is whether it pleases God, whether it pleases, uh, whether it matches God's desires. Uh, in other words, not my will, but thy will be done. If in fact we can affect this, this transition where we look at the world, we look at our lives and what happens to us and what we do, not in terms of satisfying ourselves or pleasing ourselves, but solely in terms of pleasing God. Pleasing God is the measure of our, uh, of our response to everything that happens to us. Pleasing God is our measure of everything we do. It's no longer the yardstick against which we measure everything that happens to us is not how well does it fit with what I want, but how well does it fit with what God wants. So, so we have these two building blocks. we have the first building block, which is this fairy tale gift that everything that happens is exactly what we want. We have the second building block, which is the building block, so to speak of conversion, that what uh our yardstick for everything isn't what we we want and what God wants. Now, let me add a third building block. that third building block is divine providence because in fact, everything that happens to us is coming from the hands of God and is a reflection of God's total divine providence. And in that light, I will uh, take the words out of myself. There's no reason, of course, to believe me, but give the words of a prayer that the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy say every morning in their morning prayer. Heavenly Father, nothing happens without your will. May your will be the light of my heart, the food of my soul, the light of my intellect, and the strength of my will. Allow me to unite myself with your will, Lord. Let your power work in me and strengthen me, so that every day I may be able to fulfill everything that you expect from me through Christ our Lord. Amen. I will repeat that first line, Heavenly Father, nothing happens without your will. We know this to be true. Nothing happens without God's will. In fact, everything that comes to meet us is an expression of God's will. So combine these three building blocks, so to speak, and what do you get? You get the fact that, in fact, we should be going through this life as perfectly happy and as perfectly peaceful and without anxiety as if we were the character in that initial fairy tale. In other words, no, everything that happens to us is not a reflection of our will. Everything that happens to us, however, is a reflection of God's will. And if all we care about is God's will, if we put God in first place and ourselves in second place and do not prefer what we want over what God wants, but prefer what God wants over what we want, then we should be in that position of the character in that fairy tale of going through this life in the full certitude that absolutely everything is, in fact, a perfect reflection of what, if not, if what if not of what we want, of what we should want and of what we know to be what we should want, which is that God be pleased in everything, that God's will be served in everything. So I hope that made some sense. Um, it's certainly uh, a lot easier to talk the talk than to walk the walk. I'm very aware of that. But nonetheless, it is always a good idea to remind ourselves of the talk uh, in other words, to remind ourselves of how we should be responding to things and how we should be understanding things, because over time, that will chip away at our consciousness and at our emotional responses and so forth, and will uh, permeate us and marinate us so that, um, please God, one day we might be able to live in that state, which is the state that I believe virtually all of the saints live in, which is that state of peace. And in some sense, happiness, uh, uh, maybe not a gleeful happiness because there's a lot of suffering, but peace and happiness because, in fact, everything around us, everything that comes to meet us, everything that impacts our lives and our experience of life and so forth is, in fact, the most perfect thing coming from the hands of God and not something to uh, regret or be disappointed in or rebel against. Remember when when Jesus said to St. Paul, you make things very difficult for yourself when you kick against the goad, when you kick against the direction that you're being led in. And in fact, the circumstances of our lives are the direction we're being led in, whether we sort of like it or not, for our own truest good, out of the hands of a perfectly knowing, perfectly loving, perfectly merciful God. So... That's my preaching for the moment, or for today. Now, um, I will go from there. By the way, uh, if one does wish to call in about that or anything, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Now I want to go from there to a more normal content of the show, that is um, Jewish to Catholic, conversion histories, and I will read the account from a young Argentinian woman named Luciana, who I had the pleasure of getting to know uh, a couple of years ago, and helping her a little bit uh, in her entry into the church. So I will just go into this account of hers. Uh, English is not her first language, and uh, so in uh, some points this English account will perhaps reflect that, but I'd like to leave it in her words. So here is the witness testimony of Luciana, a Argentinian Jewish woman who is now a, please God, fanatic Catholic. I was born in a Jewish family. My great-grandparents were all Jews. My paternal grandmother was Polish, and before the war came to Argentina because of the poor conditions that prevailed in Poland. I had a life and a childhood that was always happy and full of love. I never lacked anything, either material or emotional. I was raised with traditional family values, and religion was mostly a matter of belonging and tradition for us. I always went to a Jewish school, both elementary and high school. All the people around me were Jewish, in the club, in the school, and my friends. I think I hardly knew people who weren't Jewish. I've always followed traditions, festivities, the Jewish New Year, Passover, Day of Atonement. I sang Jewish songs and also did my bat mitzvah, which is what Jewish women celebrate at 12 years old, the first time they read the Torah. This happens in non-Orthodox Judaism, since in the more religious forms of Judaism, only men can read from the Torah. When I grew up, I started going out and meeting people from other religions or no religion at all. I was always very interested in these contacts talking about other issues, college kids who spoke of new things for me that I loved, philosophy, psychology, religion, etc. At 19, I met the man who is now my husband. He's from a Catholic family completely. His sister is even a nun today. His parents went to church every Sunday, and he did too. If he missed Mass, it was a matter of teenager laziness, but it was a part of his life and customs. I was raised by my parents always under the tacit premise that I should marry a Jewish boy, but they were never closed-minded and knew before all else that the main thing was love and that whoever was to be my husband should be a good person. I always kept my mind open in that sense, but when I thought I could be with a guy who wasn't Jewish, I never imagined being with someone Catholic, that is, with such a present religion. The first time I went to his house, it surprised me the images they had. I always think I was so in love with him that I could overcome all the cultural shocks that I had, hanging crucifixes, a photo of the Pope, images of the Virgin. It was all so different from the places and homes that I had been. Through his family, I met an excellent example of the Catholic religion, not only in their ways and customs, but in their daily practice. My mother-in-law is a simple, good woman who lives religion in its real sense, an excellent example of a good Christian. Beyond this, that religion never interested me. I was stating this guy despite his religion. We always chatted about different topics of God, his truth, etc., but I didn't want to speak of Jesus. That was something a Jew shouldn't even go there. The other, the out-of-bounds. They didn't explicitly teach me that in my Jewish education, but it is something that is transmitted, and I don't know how. Today, I really do understand that it is a divine matter. God does not allow it. God put a veil over the Jewish people and will only allow some people that this veil gradually falls and they can see the truth. So they can read the scriptures with an open, sincere heart and find there the answers they always sought. After several years together, we got married and eventually had our first daughter. As we talked about when we were engaged, our children will be raised in both religions and traditions. We would make baptism and circumcision if they were males. It was time for the baptism of my first child, and so we did. It was a difficult time for me. All I ever saw in others on TV as part of another culture, I was living it with my own family. My parents, present at all times, witnessing an equally different, witnessing an equally difficult time for them, although they asked to be present because that moment was to be part of their granddaughter's life, and they didn't want to miss any part of her life, although it had nothing to do with their own values. The joy of my husband's family made the day a little better, because I was happy for them and I loved them. The next day, my husband and I had a long road trip, And he insisted on listening to an audio of a quote, Catholic Jew, close quote, which at first I thought was something strange and incompatible and didn't generate in me any interest. But I didn't want to see so, I didn't want to seem so closed minded as to say no, so I had no choice but to listen to it. In this audio, this person was telling about a supernatural experience he had had, a communication with God, and a year later with the Virgin Mary. It's a very interesting story, but quite long to detail here. This person has nowadays many books and audios in which he tells his story. His name is Roy Shoman. This audio I heard that day was only his testimony. didn't speak at any time of the arguments about what the truth is, but telling only about the supernatural experience he had had. What has this to do with me? That at that moment... Just hearing his testimony, again, where there was no argument or anything, but he saying what had happened to him and how today he lived his life as a full Jew, a Jew who recognizes Jesus as the Messiah and the Church, as a transmitter of his ideas and doctrine, the invisible veil fell from my eyes, my heart, and I believed in everything in a second. I don't understand how it worked but it was as if they were transplanted into a new part of my brain, full of knowledge and understanding. Not only I believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but the Church was the true transmitter of truth, the virginity of Mary, the infallibility of the Pope, and all that doctrine teaches. At that moment, I believed forever and also became aware of the role of my existence. I always knew I had a mission, as everyone does, But I didn't know what was mine. And at that moment, I also understood that my mission was as a Jew, excuse me, I also understood that my mission as a Jew was was to embrace this faith and transmit it to my environment and others. That was eight and a half years ago. And what has happened since then? While such conversion was instantaneous as to my inner life, it wasn't as fast in my outer life. With my husband, We talked a lot about the subject and began to research. I contacted the person of the testimony I had heard, Roy Shoman, and I started researching and reading rational arguments on the subject. Meanwhile, I had an inner dilemma. If I believe in this, I must be consistent with that. And Jesus not only gave amazing and wise teachings, but also said things that one should do. I am the way, the truth, and the life, the baptism, the communion, It was all too much for me at the time. The family issue was difficult, but what would my family say? How will this hurt my parents? And I couldn't carry out this process in secret. If my mission is to pass this on, how could I do it in secret? If one day I would have to tell them, it was better to tell them before I took the Catholic sacraments. This is just a summary of what was going in my mind, going on in my mind during the five and a half years after that one moment. Of course, I also continued with my routine, my work, my daughter, and then another daughter came along, who was also baptized. This internal process was mine. I read stories of other Catholic Jews and read about the prophecies, but there it was. I didn't progress on the subject. Fear paralyzed me. At the same time, all that began to diminish inside me. Five years after this, and now almost three years ago, something incredible happened that really changed my life and my soul. A regular Sunday, I accompanied my husband to Mass. I really didn't want to go, but that day I had no excuse not to go with him, and it was better to go with him because after that, we had to go somewhere else, and from there we could go right away. So I sat beside him waiting for the end of the ceremony, a little distracted. But something happened. At the consecration time, and especially when people came to take communion, I felt in me a deep love and union with all the people who were taking communion. An inner transformation that I couldn't understand is what it was. At that moment, it was as if the most powerful magnet in the world had installed in my soul a magnet that always feels attracted every day by the Eucharist. I believe and I know that God is present there, is there. Since that day, not a day goes by that I don't feel the need to go to Mass. From that day, my heart turned to God. My inner life took an inexplicable twist, a different, deep love for everything that I ever felt. And I was and I am surrounded by love all my life. Since that Sunday, so special, the next day I asked my husband to go with me to Mass. He looked at me strangely. A Monday? I already went yesterday, Sunday. He had no choice but to go with his Jewish wife to Mass. How could he say no to such a request? On Tuesday the same. Let's go to Mass, I said, and so every day of the week. I couldn't think of anything other than the time to go to Mass, that the priest raised the host and say those words for the consecration. I watched Masses on EWTN on TV and felt envious of the people who were there witnessing it. The second week, my husband said, I love you, but if you want to go to Mass, go by yourself. But I never would have thought of going alone. Me, a Jew... In Mass by myself, it was one thing to accompany my husband and quite another to go on my own, with no excuse if someone saw me. But what I felt was so strong that, of course, I started going every morning. After leaving my children at school, there I was, every day. At this stage, I also had other feelings and such a strong connection to God at all times. It was like he was at my side, really close to my head. At times I felt such a strong energy that I could only mourn, cry and cry and cry. It wasn't sadness nor joy. It was like my soul overflowed with such a sense of God, feeling that everything I had ever heard was true, that God really existed, and not only that, but he provided for us as a whole, and he is present and knows us, knows me, and decided not to wait for me anymore and shook me and filled me with his love. So great and so different love to what I knew. All this at that time of my life was the impetus I needed to carry out what I knew I had to do for years, talk to my family, be baptized, and take communion. It's so a long story how everything happened. It's difficulties, nerves, thoughts, tensions. But in the course of fewer than three months, I could do all that for five years I didn't dare, telling it to some of my family members and then being baptized, taking communion and being confirmed. From that time until today, some days more than others, every time I go to mass at the moment of communion, my heart beats, even if sometimes I lose contact during, do, even if sometimes I lose contact due to life's daily occupations, some days more than others. In that moment, my heart beats as if it acted independently of the rest of my body, as if it saw what my eyes can't, as if it perceives what my senses can't. If it were not for my duties and responsibilities, I would go twice a day to Mass to feel this profound presence of God. To receive Him is to feel a hug from Him that feeds my soul. Although not all of my friends and family know about this part of my life, Little by little, I am starting to tell it to certain people. Currently, I'm starting to tell my story, and I'm putting it together as a personal blog with thoughts and writings for people interested in this topic and people who may feel doubts, fears, and needs to share it with someone else. The URL is http colon uh Spelling that out, it's J-U-D-I-A-Y-C-A-T-O-L-I-C-A dot com. And if my Spanish is correct, uh, I suspect that is Jew and com in Spanish. Continuing with Luciana's story. In no way would I say this is a story of conversion. I call it a story of fulfillment because I did not convert to another religion. I am Jewish, and I recognize the true Messiah of Judaism that God sent, who is Jesus, and he conveys his ideas, sacraments, doctrines, through the Church. That is why I follow Catholicism. This Church has the Eucharist, God present, really and truly present, at every Mass. Also, I do not lose my roots, nor stop having my traditions. My daughters are Jewish and Catholic. They go to a Hebrew school, and they also do the rituals and take the Catholic sacraments. These two religions are the perfect communion, wholeness, fulfillment, the perfect union, two pieces of a puzzle that fit perfectly, and none ever would eliminate the other. Luciana. Wow. Thank you for listening to that. What a treat to have read it. Um, it's a beautiful beautiful, beautiful witness testimony, and uh, needless to say i'm i'm honored to have um, been a, a a channel for luciana 's experience and with that let me um we usually go to a short break about halfway through the show, and we are there now. So we will turn to a short musical break. Before we do, let me say, this is Roy Shulman. You're listening to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Let's take that short break and be back in a few moments.
0: nor the arrow that flies by. in your home. We now return to Jesus, the promised Messiah of
1: Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman. Welcome back to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. And uh, I've been reading today a couple of uh, witness testimonies of other Jews who enthusiastically entered the Catholic Church. Uh, Before the break, I read the account of a woman from Argentina named Luciana. She was actually on the show a few years ago, and if you want to hear her telling her witness testimony, you can go back into the show archives. I know it's on the show archives on my website, which is salvationisfromthejews.com. It may also still be on the show archives of uh, Radio Maria at radiomaria.us under the series name that it had before, uh, the radio show series, that is. This show used to be called Salvation is from the Jews, so it would be under that. That name. But anyway, it was the October 13th, 2013 show, uh, which is definitely at least up on salvationsfromthejews.com. And uh, she gave that show under a pseudonym. So her name um, in that show is Yael, because at the time she wasn't comfortable, um, you know, she, she was more comfortable being anonymous. And now I'm going to shortly read the witness testimony of another Jew who entered the Catholic Church, a British man named Bernard. And, uh, he has, I mean, I could say unfortunately passed away, but for him, I suspect it's fortunately passed away. Uh, he died earlier this year after, uh, of cancer. Um, but he was on the show as a guest on October 25th, 2014 giving his witness testimony. So, again, that's that's archived up on the Radio Maria Show archive on my website, salvationsfromthejews.com, and as the October 25th, 2014 show, or you could just search for Bernard and find his, or search for um, uh, Yael or Argentina and find Luciana's. And uh, before I launch into Bernard's witness testimony, uh, I, let me just um, remind myself, remind you, that I am leading a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, to Israel, um, in the spring of 2017, the week after Easter. We're we're leaving around Divine Mercy Sunday, and if you're interested in um, uh, going on such a pilgrimage, uh, I'll be organizing it and and leading it and, and directing the sites. It's kind of uh, Jewish roots of the Catholic Church pilgrimage. We'll go to the the um, s- traditional serious Catholic pilgrimage sites, which are, of course, the most serious pilgrimage sites in the whole universe, actually, when you think about it, Calvary and the tomb where Jesus was buried and resurrected from and, and the Garden of Gethsemane and, and um, the uh, – Place where he preached the Sermon on the Mount, and of course, the spot he was born in Bethlehem, and so forth and so on. But we'll also add some, um, Jewish roots of the Catholic Church sites, some, uh, sites that are connected with the, uh, first of all, with Old Testament saints, and second of all, with, um, the, um, continuing presence of Judaism after the coming of the Messiah, in between the first and second coming of the Messiah. So if you're interested in that pilgrimage, you can uh, uh, just uh, send uh, send me an uh, email um, and uh, send an email to roy at com and let me know and I'll, I'll put you on the list of people to receive information about that pilgrimage. Anyway, on to Bernard Ellis's witness testimony. Uh, it's titled, A Jewish Man Brought to His Knees Three Times by Our Blessed Mother. My wife, Suzanne, who was born a Catholic, first heard about Medjugorje in 1983. She remembered the stories the nuns had told her when she attended a convent in her childhood about Bernadette and the apparitions in Lourdes, and she immediately recognized Our Blessed Mother's appearances in Medjugorje as having come from the same Mother of God. She had a deep conviction of being called there by Our Lady, and she begged me to take her there. I said to her at the time, it was very unfair of her to expect me to go to an overtly pious Catholic shrine where I would feel so uncomfortable, and if she really loved me, she wouldn't ask me to go there. She replied, if you loved me, Bernard, you would take me there, but we didn't go. Nine months later, we went on holiday to Dubrovnik. It had been Sue's choice that we should go there. I had not been too keen to go to a communist country for a holiday, but I went to please her. While we were there, she begged me to take her to Medjugorje for just one day. I had realized, when she had chosen Dubrovnik for a holiday, that she had something else on her mind. So again, just to please her, I agreed to visit the shrine for just one day. To my surprise, when we arrived there, everything was very normal. No enormous shows of piety. No people lying on the ground, pounding their breasts walking about in sackcloth and ashes, just ordinary people like Sue and I. The villagers were very welcoming, and they showed hospitality, which I had never experienced before. I had heard that Catholics in that area were anti-Semitic, but when I told them I was Jewish, I received even a bigger welcome and felt very relaxed to be there. At about 5 o'clock, we were by the church where the rosary was being recited, and we met somebody who we had known in London. When she saw me there, she said, Oh, it's wonderful that a Jewish man is visiting Medjugorje, and our Blessed Mother will be so happy to see you here. She suggested that it would be possible for me to go into the room where the apparition would take place, but I thought this was not appropriate because I didn't believe in what was happening there. I didn't know Jesus, yet alone his Blessed Mother, and I really didn't believe that she could be appearing to six young people. I found myself standing outside the presbytery with a crowd of other people who were all imploring Sister Yanya, who was there in office at the time, and Father Tomislav, who was the parish priest, to allow them in when the apparition took place. The woman who brought me there told Sister Yanya that I was a Jewish man and that I should go into the room of the apparitions because our Blessed Mother would be happy to see me. At the same time, I noticed that there was an Italian woman who had a very sick child. She was crying and imploring Sister Yanya to let her go into the room, believing that the child would be healed. I said to Sister Yanya, Please let this Italian woman go in. It's not right that I should go in, because I don't really believe what's happening there. Father Tomislav came out and saw all these people arguing and grabbed hold of the Italian woman and me before I knew where I was. I was walking across the altar and I was hustled into the room in the side chapel where the apparitions took place. The room was small and crowded and unbearably hot. People were squeezed shoulder to shoulder without an inch to spare. Soon the six visionaries came in. They started to pray, and then they fell to their knees. I was looking at the wall to see if I could see anything unusual, if I could see the Mother of God, but I just saw the wall and a rather badly painted statue of the Virgin Mary. As everybody knelt, so did I. There was no alternative. We were packed so tightly together that when one knelt down, we all had to kneel. I remember thinking that it was impossible for any more people to get into the room, and standing up, it was crowded enough, but kneeling down, we were taking up twice the space. So there was a knee in my calf, and there was another knee on my heel, and I felt most uncomfortable. The room was silent, just the sound of the people breathing, and then the silence was broken by the sound of crying. It was the Italian lady with a sick child. I began to notice that there was some special presence. Something was happening in that room, which I didn't understand. And then before I knew where I was and what was happening, everybody was standing up and we went outside. My wife was waiting with tears streaming down her face, saying to me, you'll never know just what a wonderful grace this has been for all our family. Sue was so happy that I had been in the room of the apparition. It's something I didn't understand at the time, because although I didn't believe what was happening, I reasoned that if by chance the Mother of God was traveling through time and space to appear to six visionaries in Medjugorje, it made little difference whether I was inside the room or on the other side of the wall. She would have been able to see me anyway, something I just could not comprehend. So this was the first occasion that I was forced to kneel. By tradition, Jewish people do not kneel for fear that they would be breaking one of the commandments by bowing down in front of a graven image and so this was contrary to the Orthodox Jewish teachings that I had received when I was a young man, and I felt guilty that I had knelt in this room in front of that badly painted statue. I returned to Medjugorje many times with my wife because I found it such a pleasant and friendly place to visit, which was very enjoyable, and I knew something was happening there which I didn't understand, but whatever was happening, it had the effect of making everybody that visited there extremely nice and friendly, and loving towards one another. So I went there without believing, but enjoying the environment. I continued to visit Medjugorje for many years, and I recognized it as a place where I could escape to find peace and wonderful relaxation and friendship. Um, I'm going to skip a section of this now, uh, because we're coming too close to the end of the show. Um but I will, uh, uh and I don't want to not get to the heart of the conversion, so I will continue a little fur- further along. The following year we were again in Medjugori, and on one of the occasions when we visited Father Yozo to hear his talk, I was, I told Sue that I wanted to stay behind and pray with Father Yozo. There was the usual enormous great crowd, and Sue said, there's so many people here, we should get back to Medjugori, but I said, I want him to pray with me. I was insistent, so we waited and waited and waited until we were near the front of the queue. Eventually it came to my turn, and I told Father Yozo that I was Jewish and that I wanted Father Yozo to pray that the Holy Spirit, the Jewish people, recognized the Holy Spirit, would enlighten me that I would do what was right for myself. Father Yozo placed one hand on my heart, and he put his other arm around Sue and myself. He prayed in Croatian. I didn't understand the words, but it sounded very sincere. During the prayers, I felt an enormous pounding in my heart. Sue told me later she felt it as well, as if my heart was going to burst through my shirt. Then the prayers ended, and we had to get a taxi, and we went back to Medjugorje. Back in England, I thought about my meeting with Father Yozo and that tear from heaven, but still did not take instruction into the Catholic faith, and still I did not believe. A year after that, in August of 1987, Father Slavko was attending a Catholic charismatic renewal service in the Catholic shrine of Walsingham in England, and Sue and I attended. It was the night of the reconciliation service after which Father Slavko was going to celebrate Eucharistic adoration. Father Slavko came onto the altar and looked down at this bustling, noisy, excited crowd. He just stood there. He didn't move. He just stared at them waiting for them to place themselves in the right frame of mind for adoration. um, Father Slavko waited, and the crowd became quieter and quieter, and eventually they became motionless, silent, calm. There was not a sound in the room. Father Slavko slowly placed the monstrance on the altar and presented the blessed sacrament to the assembled. There was a perfect peacefulness, a sublime stillness. Everybody fell to their knees. Again, I was the last person left standing, but on that occasion, I felt an inward conviction that I should also kneel. But on this third occasion, it was because I wanted to. So I knelt, and as I did so, in that all-embracing moment, I looked at the faces of the people around me who were staring at the Blessed Sacrament, and then I looked at the Blessed Sacrament, and in some way I felt that there was a presence there that was looking back at the people kneeling before its very being, At that moment, I was given a gift, one which can never be explained because it's pure gift. I knew that God was truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. At that same moment, Jesus called me to accept him as my Savior, and I did. I returned to England, and I asked my parish priest to instruct me in the Catholic faith. There were many things that were difficult for me to understand, but which I accepted because I was overwhelmed by this wonderful opportunity that God was giving me. I was looking forward to the day when I would be received into the church and baptized. I learned about the real presence in the Eucharist, uh, something that I had recognized, and I learned that God comes to us each day through Holy Mass to nourish us physically and spiritually, and then when we will make the inevitable mistakes that we all do through our human frailty, I could go to the priest in the sacrament of confession, and if I was truly repentant, the sins that I had committed would be forgiven. Being a convert and having had a Jewish education, I realized that everything that was present in the Catholic faith was rooted deeply in the Jewish faith, so I was not becoming a Catholic so much as a completed Jew, and I am truly thankful that God, in his infinite mercy, has given me this wonderful opportunity. Well, I'm going to have to stop there because we've come to the end of our time. But um, there's not much to add. I, I think it's interesting in both these stories, the conviction of the true presence in the blessed sacrament was the final straw, so to speak, that that God made himself so directly known through the Eucharist, through adoration or the consecration of the Eucharist, I'm just diminishing things by adding to these beautiful witness testimonies, so i better quit while I'm ahead. There's nothing that can be added except to celebrate the goodness of God and the incredible, incomprehensible mercy and generosity that he has shown in bringing us to faith in Jesus and to the full, full knowledge of him, knowledge of the meaning of life, and participation in his life through the sacraments in the Catholic Church. And I hope that seeing the infinite gift of the Catholic Church through the eyes of these other Jewish converts will reinvigorate our own love and certainty and faith and gratitude for all we have been given. And with that, I just want to say thank you for having listened, and please tune in again next week for Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Bye for now.